I'm Joe Devine and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Today I'm joined by James Montague who recently wrote a script for a video on our YouTube channel about Manchester United and the Glazers and the history of Malcolm Glazer in particular and his children who are now directors of Manchester United. We talk about Malcolm Glazer in the early days when he bought the Tampa Bay Buccaneers how he managed to get a city in America to institute a new tax so that they could pay for his stadium. And also we talk a little bit about the leveraged buyout that Glazer used to buy Manchester United. Really, I want to get a sense from James as how we can evaluate the Glazer's ownership of Manchester United. It's very complex and the situation at times was incredibly negative for the club, particularly from a financial perspective. However, recently the financial situation has obviously improved. And the Glazers have done a lot of work commercialising and globalising Manchester United, making them the most valuable football team in the world. So I want to talk to James about, as I said, how we evaluate their time at Manchester United and whether or not what they've done is a good or bad thing. Presumably it's somewhere in the middle. Most things are. Anyway, I lost my first question in the edit, but I began by asking James to talk to us a little bit more about Glazer during his time with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in America. So firstly, here's the flute, then there's James. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about the Glazers is that actually they didn't read, they're really... Well, certainly Malcolm Glazer, who's the, um, he's dead now, uh, but the patriarch of the family who was really instrumental in both the Tampa Bay Buccaneers deal and, and then, of course, had to put front the cash, or well, not front the cash as it, as it turned out, for the Manchester United deal, was that he didn't really care much for sport. He was a guy who loved making money. You know, this was a guy who grew up very poor from a Lithuanian Jewish family, growing up in New York, uh, orphaned at a very young age, uh, self-made uh, millionaire, who you know became a part of the super rich basically by buying kind of strip malls um real estate uh kind of trailer parks uh, these kind of things but he he became enamored with the idea of buying a NFL franchise and buying an NFL franchise is is fairly difficult because you've got to it's not just a question of a, a club uh, sorry a franchise comes up on the market and then you buy them uh, you have to kind of it's a cartel so you have to um, make sure that everybody is happy. Everybody has to vote on you being uh, a, a member of the club if, to come in. And so they bought the, the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which was seen as a bit of a down at heel uh, franchise. Uh, it was seen perhaps as a market that wasn't big enough uh, to to really you know make any money from. You know, it was seen as a kind of a bit of a student place, transient population. Uh, not not the demographic of viewers and ad- the advertisers were looking for. So uh, when he when he took over, uh, there's a famous uh, he had discussions with with, with the other F- uh, NFL owners uh, where he didn't really know anything about American football or anything about the rules or had no interest in the sport whatsoever. Um, but what was very clear is that he saw that the stadium was uh, run down. It needed uh, renovation. It wanted to have, um, if he was going to make any added value on those tickets, he needed to bring in boxes. He needed to bring in uh, much better ways for him to make money out of it. And so, 
what what he basically turns around to the city and to the county and says, look, I mean, this is a huge uh, feather in your cap to have an NFL uh, team. And if you want to keep it, because at the moment I can move it wherever I like, uh, as long as the NFL agrees to it, which they usually do, um, you know, then then you've got to help out. Um, You lose all sorts of money, you lose all sorts of prestige. And so the, the city of Tampa and the county of Hillsborough go out of their way, basically, to find a, a way to keep the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Malcolm Glazier in the, in the city. And is that, is that because it's important to the local economy to, to keep them there? Or is it more than that? Is it the prestige of having an NFL franchise in the city? Well, the people who are after this form of corporate welfare, because this is what it is, effectively, you're giving the richest people in America a massive tax cut. Uh, You're subsidizing them money that would have to be found, you know, that would usually be found for other things, uh, public services, those kind of things. Um, They would argue, yes, there is an economic uh, premium to this. Uh, It brings in hundreds of millions of pounds every year. That's why you need to keep us. Now, these basically, there's no economic uh, economist on the, in the land who would agree with that. Uh, over the years, there have been many, many studies done into what the actual economic impact of having an NFL franchise or an NBA franchise uh, in your city, what it actually brings. Does it bring these huge economic benefits? And they've actually found that in many cases, they bring no benefits. And the benefits they do, they do bring are marginal at best. And certainly well, like no... Jobs jobs as it turns out the jobs that are usually created by um you know they're they're, they're short term some building work um you know uh, the jobs that are created afterwards are usually very low paid uh low skilled and uh you know they, they, these aren't full-time jobs you know these these are these are bad jobs you can't live on these jobs so what would you say to, to people suggesting let's you know let's take a, a, an, an English club, a football club, for example, when there's an away game and that brings in three or four thousand people from from another area to to help the the local businesses around the stadium on a Saturday. What what's the what's the value of that to the economy? And and, and because presumably that's very difficult to quantify. Well, it, the issue here is that note that the apart from perhaps a policing issue about how much a team should pay for policing, and if we look at West Ham United, that was a that was a sizable bill, and that's obviously somewhere where the stadium has gone and left behind many businesses. It's one thing to say that businesses around a handful of businesses around um, will obviously lose business and make out of business. It's quite another to say that is offset by hundreds of billions of pounds of subsidy given to the owner. That that somehow makes it worth it. It doesn't in the long run. Whatever small uh, business um, increase in in business that is is very important for those small businesses, that doesn't in any way correlate with the type of uh, sub-state subsidy that, say, American uh, franchise owners are asking for. So the issue wasn't necessarily that there was um, that, that, that it wasn't like a tiny amount. There was there was some benefit in some cases, but the issue was that it, that didn't justify the type of subsidy that they were asking for, which which ran into hundreds of millions of pounds. So, so it's a con. It's basically a con. There's a great um, uh, there's a book called Field of Schemes. Uh, that I, I recommend everybody should read by, by an American journalist who basically has been covering this kind of American, very American scam that's been going on with American uh, franchise stadiums of, of people threatening to leave. I and mean, we talked a little bit about this about with uh, Stan Kroenke, which is one of the reasons he moved uh, moved the um, 
St. Louis Rams to LA originally it was in LA but moved it back there was was all about trying to leverage a better deal when it came to the state basically fronting up cash for a new stadium so this is a well-worn path but um these were back in this is back in the 1990s so these are kind of early days in how people would get around it and it's actually got fairly it, it, people think of like american sports and franchises moving around um actually that didn't really happen uh, unless a couple, a franchise was going out of business until the early 1980s so this actually even in america it's a relatively new but very quickly owners worked out that um even if let's say there was no benefit uh, economically speaking you you'll be hit at the ballot box because these are elected officials that would have to make this and they would have to explain to uh, football loving uh, voters why they let their beloved NFL team leave <laughs> so this was so so they very cleverly leveraged that unhappiness very lever- mm. to get you know hundreds of millions of pounds billions of pounds of uh, dollars in state subsidies so what happened was a politico uh, uh, in florida came up with a a middle ground, which was the community investment tax, which was essentially a, uh, a value-added tax on on beers, other you know, on groceries, um, and it was uh, I can't remember if it was exactly it was a couple it was a couple of cents. It wasn't it was couple, you know very low percentage, and some of that money would go towards policing, some of that money would go to other uh, other things. But the idea was that it would raise two two point seven three three billion dollars that would essentially pay for the majority of the stadium, keep the bucks in, in Tampa Bay, uh, in Tampa City, and and everybody's happy. And so um, there was a lot of unhappiness uh, amongst the political, uh, and not just this was a Democrat and Republican, this is an issue that have, uh, Democrats and Republicans agree on, because on the one hand, the Democrats are saying, well, this is a tax cut for the super rich, and the Republicans are saying, well, this is this, the state shouldn't be spending money on on stadiums. So there was a cross-party agreement and there's a lot of opposition to it, but it went to uh, a vote and it, and it won. It, it was, I think it was 40, 53 to 47%. Um, and so 6%, they agreed 6% of this $3 billion would go towards building the Buck Stadium. And, and that's mm. effectively what happened. The, the Raymond James Stadium opens in 1998 and then you have a situation now which has been replicated across America uh, sales tax taxes have been used often as a way to uh, sugar the pill. Uh, but the fact is, because it's a sales tax, you are hurting the poorest people in your community. Because whether you're on ten thousand, uh, you know, dollars a year or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, you, you pay the same tax uh, on a packet of cigarettes. You know that, or, or a can of pop, or whatever. It's kind of you know that that is the, that is a higher percentage of your income if you're poorer than if you're richer. Um, and so it's so I mean it's highly immoral what happened totally legal um, and yet you know at the same time I think there is a huge moral dimension to it now fast forward to um, you know to the early 2000s when you have you know the Glazers then emerge from nowhere I mean they were very very well known for what they've been doing in, in US franchise sport but they emerge as, as a shock uh, owner potential owner of Manchester United and what was interesting is again Malcolm Glazer has zero interest in in uh, in football in soccer uh, but his sons are extremely uh, big soccer fans uh, Joel Glazer in particular uh, but more importantly they can see that 
there is a not quite a distressed asset because this is Manchester United we're talking about who you know of course winning the Champions League have dominated English football during that period but were very underexploited commercially they could see the international global appeal to Manchester United in a way that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the way that the NFL just does not have an international um, appeal in the way that soccer has so they they basically persuaded their father that this would be a, a money-making opportunity and and they and they went for they, they started acquiring shares because it was a listed company and they started acquiring shares until uh you know the point where they couldn't acquire shares anymore and then we have this incident over a racehorse which is the reason essentially why the glazers could buy Manchester United. So from from one con to, to another, really, from uh, well, the con, from the, the con here is a bit different. Tanks. Yeah, the con here is different. It's not the they we don't have the. Um, I mean, I know there's been issues with the Man- city of Manchester Stadium, and of course with uh, the Olympic Stadium um, with, with West Ham United about essentially the state giving a huge subsidy to a football club for their stadium. So there has been some examples of it, but we haven't quite had this. Um, kind of competition of moving if you don't give us this we're going to move our football club elsewhere we'll talk about this later I don't think we're that far off something like that happening and the first time it happens once that plaster's pulled off I think we're going to see a lot more of those of those kind of deals uh, taking place but the, the way so they would, got around, that, would that be yeah. allowed to happen in the in the in the Premier League because as far as I understood it to this point the, the the franchise ownership model of uh, many of the of the clubs yeah. in America is 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 very different to 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 that in England. I mean, could can you are you saying you can envisage a time when a football club in England threatens to move to a, to a different area? Yes, and I don't think necessarily that that would happen under the uh, English Premier League, or even if the FA has any say on it, as what we saw with MK Dons and Wimbledon, um, which that MK Dons are still kind of tarred in a way, they're kind of tainted in a way as the team that kind of you know, that tried this franchise model and they still are seen as hated by most league fans for it. Um, But what I think the danger is with the way that football is becoming rapidly commercialised, I mean, I think Deloitte released a a report today looking at revenues, which are the 10 biggest soccer clubs in the world by revenue. And, you know, five of the 10, top 10 are English clubs, uh, but, you know, you've now got Manchester United making almost 700 million euros a year just in revenue, you know, which is an incredible increase in, in what, what was being earned. And this is largely down to the commercialisation and the leverage of, of its commercial appeal abroad by the Glazer family. Um, but what the danger is, and we've talked about this a couple of times before, is that I can see a, 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 this breakaway European League, which people often have been talking about really since the dawn of the Premier League. You know, I can see more of a breakaway global league taking place where you have, you know, uh, huge clubs, huge brands, uh, huge Instagram followings breaking away and forming a kind of NFL type cartel where you then do have the ability. If you then have rules that say it's just what the other owners of the club allow you to do and they make a case, well, we're not making enough money in, in Liverpool if you're Everton. Uh, and you and you happen to be part of that cartel, why not move it to think of a city that's offering a huge tax break? Let's say Dublin. Dublin offers a £300 million tax break in a new stadium. But then Baku and Azerbaijan says, no, actually, we'll take you. 
um, you know, we'll give you 500, you know, and then you have this, and when you've got the issue that the, the, the majority and the vast majority and the increasing majority of a club's revenue uh, is coming from non-match day sources, suddenly what is happening on match day to the fans become less and less important. And as the owners become more detached from fans, from the match day experience, you know, that kind of decision, which would be based on hard numbers and actually based on, you know, continued uh, preservation within this cartel of an NFL-type global soccer super league, you can see how that how that could happen. And um, so we should be we should be looking at what happens in the US when it comes to these stadium deals and how the people who are now owning football clubs in Europe have cut their teeth on these deals and they know these deals back to front and they expect them and I would be I'd, it's naive to expect them not to try somehow to leverage the exact same kind of deals out of cities across Europe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think what's interesting at the moment as well about the uh, the you know, as you, we we talked there about the rise in commercial income for a lot of the big clubs in the Premier League and how it's now dwarfing match day income, which used to be you know the, the the prevalent source of revenue for football clubs. What I found interesting in the last couple of years is how match day income is is still important to clubs in the top five or six, but in a slightly different way. Because I think when the uh, when the most recent TV deal came through, there was a lot of discussion about how gate receipts were going to ha- have uh, much less of an impact on uh, on the, the the bottom line of football clubs, which is ostensibly true. However, uh, if you look at the top you know, six clubs in England, there's still a, a sort of a, a, a scrum to, to get yourself a new stadium because it's no longer about competing with the rest of the Premier League or even the rest of the clubs in Europe. The difference now is that the other big five clubs in the in the top six with you are sharing the same TV money as you, but they have bigger stadiums. And so it's more about keeping up with your with your rivals. So I think you're absolutely right. If you can, if we could envisage a, a future in which there was a financial benefit to uh, moving cl- the club elsewhere or, or bringing in a totally new style uh, of ownership or, in, you know, increasing. I mean, for example, what if uh, a capital city in a wealthy country in another part of the world was to offer a big Premier League club £200 million for the year to play their matches in, in that area or something? You know, if that dwarf what they were already making on gate receipts, then the other clubs presumably would have to would have to follow suit to to, to keep up. I mean, that's one um, thing I've talked about in the past uh, is that it's going to be one of these type of deals that opens the floodgates, and it could well be. I mean, I was very surprised not to see. I mean, maybe these discussions are taking place behind the scenes. I know nothing. I'm not privy to this information when it comes to Tottenham's uh, stadium deal. You know, obviously they went to Wembley, but. You know, given what you know about the Middle East and the ambitions of Doha, uh, the ambitions of uh, Dubai, the ambitions of Abu Dhabi, the the talk of the 38th game, you know, one day there's going to be a club that will cleverly decide, you know, we will have, you know, rather than Wembley or uh, playing in the nearest big stadium in Manchester, you know, it will be a a big city will, will offer them a stadium to play there all the year round. Um, you know, so suddenly you'll have, I don't know, West Bromwich Albion playing in, playing in Sharjah, you know, and they're given a huge amount of money. They're given the money. They don't have to pay for the stadium to be there and that will effectively pay for the new stadium. And then once that happens, those kind of deals, you know, then it, it, it's, it's, it's only one way that that's going to go. I mean, it's a bit. Of a how, how does that work from a pra- practical point of view, though? Because you know, even even in the Champions League, there's lots of talk about how travelling so much between games is detrimental to the uh, to the the standard yeah. of football. 
But that's becoming less and less important. You know, the, the, what happens, you know, the fatigue of the players, the travel fatigue, um, you know, these are becoming these issues like what, how the fans get there. You know, they don't really care about those those issues. You know, then these aren't things that occupy uh, people's minds when they're making these kind of financial decisions. You know, uh, maybe they will have a, a situation where um, they will pay for the travel. I mean, you've got I know it's a bit of a smaller uh, version. I think it's Jersey that are in the. I mean, it's Conference South, I think. And anyway, the fact that they've been allowed into the English football pyramid um, and they've been campaigning to do that, they now play there. But because it's obviously it's a long way away and a lot of these clubs don't have money, they pay for the for the flights for clubs to get to, to Jersey. Right, uh, so yeah. you can see something similar like that happening. They bought bear the cost of it. Um, you know, it's a six, seven hour flight, six hour flight actually not that bad you know certainly nothing compared to what the russian premier league has to put up with or mls teams have to put up with you know so it is it is it is doable so the practicality of it will be possible let's talk about the the leverage buyout uh because it's something that featured in the video on the glazers it's something i find uh absolutely fascinating and uh you describe it here as uh as a a means of uh, borrowing against or borrowing money against a future asset to buy that asset and I think you know even simpler way of putting it would be let's put you for example James Montague in a position where you want to buy a castle that's worth uh, 50 million pounds uh, but also operates as a business maybe it's a theme park Uh, you go to a bank they give you 50 million pounds to buy the castle despite you not having you know uh, having to put any money down and then once you get into the castle that money is then accrued as debt on the castle until it works itself off by the revenue that is generated by the castle without you having to spend any money. Now, that seems like something which is reserved only for incredibly wealthy people with, with, with you know, friends in high places. Yeah, well, this is the, the Wolf of Wall Street style financial instrument. I mean, this is something that was seen as a predatory instrument and was rarely used in global finance until really the Big Bang in the 1980s when... Um, you know the global financial economy and and its financial centres were uh, were heavily deregulated, and then suddenly, um, in fact, it's not just the Glazers. I mean, a lot of um, figures that you see, uh, Hicks and Gillette in particular, were were experts in leverage buyouts. I mean, this is how businesses were bought. You know, it became a way of you, you used debt to buy things. You didn't have to put any your own money in any assets in nothing, and so actually they used very little of their own money to buy this, and it's. Of course, morally, there's an issue here, completely legal to do, but you're essentially, you know, what what good is this? You know, what good is this kind of transaction? Because, you know, this is, you're using the success of a business against itself to, to have the power taken away. And then the danger, of course, with Manchester United, with the football club, is a little bit dis- different, uh, difficult to then break up an asset and sell it on. But that's something that, that made it a very um, morally questionable financial instrument in the, in the 80s and 90s because that's in often cases what would happen you would you, you'd find a successful business borrow money to take it over then destroy it by breaking it off selling off the assets making it a profit paying off the loan and having a tidy profit at the end of it yeah. and at the end of the day the business is destroyed so um that's not quite <laughs> what's happened here no. um well, it's not it. that dissimilar it's not they, that have, they haven't destroyed but... the asset but they but they've taken money out as they've gone 
They've used the asset yeah. to pay off the its its debt, and I mean, it, it, I was reading an article about this just before we started recording, and it uses um, some of the quotes that you use in, in the video as well from uh, from the Manchester United Supporters Trust, uh, and the, the final quote which we didn't include in the video, which I thought I would uh, just read here as well, attests to what you've just said. Uh, they say it's a shame that we had to go through all the pain and waste the last decade simply to allow a family with no connection to Manchester United to enrich themselves at the expense of our clubs, uh, our clubs and uh, and fans. And I think that that also links to what I find most fascinating uh, most fascinating about the leverage buyout is that since the Glazers, you know, there's no evidence that they've ever put any of their own money into the club to this point. Thirteen years on after buying it, no evidence that they've ever put any of their own money into the club. The only difference is that you know between you and the Glazers is presumably that they had the 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 capital and the friends to push this sort of deal through but in theory you on on your journalist's uh, salary james montague you could have done what they've done i'm a freelancer i don't have a salary i live on i live on air <laughs> and peanuts so um sure, I mean, you, it, you see what i'm saying i mean in in theory since no money has really changed any changed hands you you could have been in the position of, of malcolm glazer because you don't have to spend any of your own money to do it if I was a fantasist and I could I could persuade a financial institution to lend me the money to buy those shares, then yes, of course. I mean, I think it would have been a bit hairy at times. I mean, I think uh, these these pick um, repayment loans that 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 were that were cr- crushing uh, interest rate at some point, and you've got to remember that if Manchester United did not have Alex Ferguson in charge, or Sir Alex Ferguson as he as he is, um, and had not kept up the incredible uh, form in the Premier League and the Champions League, uh, the, 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 the continuation of that, uh, Manchester United could have got, it could have, we could have had a Leeds United type situation. The only reason that they were able to keep their head above water, pay this incredible interest rate on the initial loans that they had to repay, the only way they did that was by continued success on the pitch and, of course, the, the incredible leveraging of its commercial clout abroad so uh, the biggest increase has been of course uh, tv revenue but also commercial revenue so now you have uh, the official paint sponsor in japan you know yeah. you have the official i think apparel spritz is the official uh, cocktail or I mean, i'm not sure if it's a cocktail but i mean you know drink boozy drink the, of, the famous diablo wine yeah well the, the diablo wine you've got uh you've i mean i mean of course leveraging much greater Noodles, uh, there's a noodle partner. Noodles, there's noodles. In fact, if you go on the Manchester United yeah, they uh, list website, it's, like it's, a it's a list. It's a list. And it's not even one list. You have to, There's sub-menus of lists <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. So you're a regional list. So like, you know, banks in Serbia. There's a bank in Serbia that's involved, you know. And it, it's, it's, I mean, it's impressive in a way. Um, and the fact that they've kept their, you know, when, when I was researching the book and obviously Malcolm Glazier dies and his, his family have carried on. I mean, it's all, all his children are directors on the board. Um, you know, I find kind of an obituary type article in some of the Tampa press and, you know, they, they interview Jerry Jones, who's the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, which is by, which is the, the most valuable uh, NFL franchise, even though they haven't got to a Super Bowl in like, I think 20 years, they haven't been Super Bowl. But this shows you, Partly why the Cronky model of ownership as well is 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 what it's about is you is you keep in the cartel and you can keep earning money you don't have to win anything you know you can you can still make fabulous amounts of cash out of it um, and and he was extremely movingly uh, positive about uh, Glazer and what he had achieved 
not just with turning the Bucks into a kind of much more profitable. I mean, I think he's tripled the the, the value of the franchise over the time they've owned it, but also how he's moved into you know a sports ownership in Europe and especially of soccer and has taken that model and shown it to be a huge success. And so they see this as a massive success. And also uh, they see it as something that should be, they should see more Americans coming and doing that because, um, and, and I think that's what we're seeing. And it's no, I don't think it's any surprise many of the American names that we are familiar with, with English clubs in particular, you know, they've cut their teeth on these kind of deals. They've cut their teeth on, uh, in baseball, in basketball, and in and in American football, so so we'll see, we'll definitely see see more of it. But um, you know, now Manchester United are in a much, you know, they're in a in a pretty strong position because the debt is is now manageable. It looks like it might even be paid off fairly soon. Um, you know, revenue is at, like we said at seven hundred euros a year, uh, seven hundred million euros a year. It's only going to get bigger. Um, so you know there's a, there's a lot of room for growth when it comes to that. I mean it doesn't seem to affect their position in the transfer market in paying for players. Uh, they seem to have kind of cash readily available. Um, well, they do now. They do now, but the issue is well I mean this is it. I mean they've weathered the storm in a way. I mean the debt is manageable and the the issue though I think for for Manchester United fans and this is this is a this is genuine is that for that to happen effectively you know, the Glazers have taken, as, as the Manchester United uh, supporters trust said, you know, have taken a, a billion pounds out of the club during that period for putting for putting virtually no money in themselves. A billion pounds has been taken out of that club. And so, you know, that is that's that's a frighteningly clever way of doing things. But it's still both frightening and clever at the same time. Well, you mentioned the the the, the incredible uh, uh, levels of interest payments. That and I think at their peak they were sixty million pound a year, as you say in in the video. Also, David Kahn in two thousand and fifteen estimated that uh, Manchester United paid around seven hundred million pounds in just in interest fees on the debt that the Glazers accrued when they bought. Yeah, the I club. think the, I think I think the billion pound figure came from the 700 million uh, interest fees but then obviously the 300 million in dividends that have been paid out to to the Glazers and to the families in fees I think they, they weren't called dividends yeah. because it's, it's obviously probably yeah. but, um, but it was but like in fees which I mean I suppose you've got you know it's a, it's a hard day's work you've got to be paid for something right <laughs> well yeah no, I don't know I, I think I, I, I find it astonishing but you touched on a key point when you were talking a moment ago uh, about the fact that they were very lucky to have Sir Alex Ferguson and a manager and I suppose a squad at the time who were capable of weathering that storm. Because if you remember mm. in 2005 when the Glazers took over, uh, Manchester United's first team included players like Ronaldo and, and Rooney who were both, you know, well, one was reaching his peak, another one was at his peak. And they had gigs and they had, you know, skulls and they had players. I, I remember um, talking to uh, a journalist about this a couple of years ago uh, who said that he thought the the purchase of Michael Carrick was the most astute transfer, uh, you know, either side of that for three or four years at the club because Ferguson realised that he could spend a little bit of money on this on this player uh, who was very good at passing wasn't wasn't brilliant at anything else. I mean, not not to do down Michael Carrick, I think he was a very good player, but his key asset was was passing, right? And he realised that all he had to do was buy Michael Carrick and put him in the middle and get him to pass it out to the wings because he had extraordinary players mm. in attacking positions who could break down clubs 
on their own or interchanging with other extraordinary players. So they were luckier in a sense to buy a club who already had a team capable of doing that. And they were lucky in a sense that they had Sir Alex Ferguson, who, as you say, was perhaps the best manager in the world at at the time. But, you know, looking back on it now, we can see the the effect that it that it had because there was a you know a period of years uh, from 2005 till till about I mean really three or four years ago where the club weren't competing in the transfer market uh, alongside rivals Manchester City and Chelsea totally took over uh, that aspect of it in England and obviously Barcelona and Real Madrid uh, on the continent as well and there were a lot of deals pushed through I think uh, players like Ashley Young are probably you know the epitome of this and whilst I'm again not not looking to uh, to do down what he's done for the club since I think that uh, he was purchased in place of someone like uh, like Robin or there were deals that were passed up for players like Schneider and really the reality of it is as the Manchester United supporters trust say to get to this point now where you're in a position you know a very strong position as you describe you essentially have to you know sacrifice the better part of a decade and be lucky in the fact that there was the leftovers of an excellent squad and, uh, you know, the last few years of an excellent manager to, to, to weather that storm. Um, and I think and that was it. They uh, were, and that was it. It was, it was luck. You know, it was, it was pure luck. And it, this could have gone very badly wrong if, if uh, Ferguson had got, uh, had retired earlier or if, you know, even if you look at, I mean, I remember, I think it was 2004 and there was talk of uh, of Ferguson leaving then. There was a lot of pressure. He, he, he outlasted his time and and he, and he stayed on, you know, and, and, and had this kind of, I mean, I don't want to say a second wind because more of his third or fourth wind. But then yeah, goes on resurgence. to have a resurgence, um, and you've got to remember at the end of his uh, end of his time, and this is part of the reason why I, I think there is some sympathy for for people who say David Moyes was kind of handed a bit of a poison chalice. Is that 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 wasn't a good Manchester United squad at all, and so actually by the end of that, he was getting the absolute maximum he could out of a very average group of players, and I think that that is to his genius, and uh, you know I'm. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of black. Sw- he's a black swan event, you know. Having having somebody like that, because otherwise Manchester United would be it would be a disaster story. It might not even be in the Premier League, you know. And, well, and let's touch honest, on him. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say let's let's touch on him more specifically because Ferguson. You know, it, it, he's he divides opinion nowadays. I I think it's a very interesting case because, as you say, he achieved all all of those things you've just mentioned and. They all attest to his genius. Nobody, uh, nobody would suggest that he wasn't a fantastic uh, football manager. Perhaps the best that's that's ever done the job. But there are things that happened throughout his career and throughout his time with Manchester United that that cast a bit of a shadow on that uh, on his uh, prestige. You know, and one of them is that when you know when the Glazers came in in two thousand and five. Firstly, not only was Ferguson directly involved in the previous uh, previous owners leaving as we talked about a mo- you know a moment ago with uh, with the rock of gibraltar he also uh, welcomed the glazers and he knew exactly what was what was going on david gill at the time described the debt the, the debt as uh, you know something which would which would rot the club and ferguson for those first couple of years became the glazers spokesperson you know i remember uh, martin edwards who was the old chairman of manchester united describing alex ferguson as uh, someone who was who was rubbish with money, and of course Roy Keane described him as uh, someone who was totally out for himself. It so happened that he was Manchester United for you know for for a couple of decades, and for a long time it worked out. But towards the end of that tenure, 
uh, when the Glazers came involved, that that changed entirely, and and him being out for himself meant something slightly different. So there are people who look at Ferguson's time at Manchester United and and uh, with much more critical eyes than a lot of the supporters do. I just wonder yeah. where I you mean, where you stand on that. I mean, they'd be mad. I mean, you know, you, you, at the end of the day, a, a coach is judged by, I think, largely by his results and, and his trophies and wh- how he's changed uh, the players that he's he's coached. And if you look at him being the most successful coach of the Premier League era, the most successful coach in Manchester United's history, probably the greatest coach in the history of English football, uh, you could easily make that, that case. Um, there have been a few unsavoury incidents. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any coach that doesn't have them. And, and of course, the irony of all of this is that, you know, Malcolm Glazer does not buy... Manchester United if it wasn't for Rock of Gibraltar or certainly it gets kicked down the can for a few years because you've got to remember and for those I mean you probably uh, people listening will probably know much more will know about this anyway but you know the Rock of Gibraltar put that he part owned uh, this very successful uh, race horse with uh, 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 McManus and Magnia you know who had a large stake in Manchester United I think it was close to 30% and it, they fell over over stud rights, which he, he uh, Ferguson thought that he should be getting a bigger bigger fee from, and uh, blew up the relationship not just between him and those two yeah. men, but with it's him the and the board, apart. and with them and the board, and with them and the supporters. Because when the supporters were given the choice of the greatest coach in their career or these two owners in the boardroom with their lardy dar ways, there of course was only going to be one choice. So, you know, th- that's what sets up uh, the the situation whereby... You could also uh, argue that if, if Ferguson had said he didn't want the Glazers to come in or he wanted someone else to take over the club, that it would have been very difficult for any potential owner to buy Manchester United if they couldn't get Ferguson on board. So you have to wonder what was said to him. Or... Well, partly, but also, you know... You know, it's about survival. Ultimately, he he was Mr. Manchester United. But look, the Glazers were prepared to take over Manchester United in spite of huge opposition from fans, from not just Manchester United fans, but all fans around around the country, kind of appalled by this kind of new method of 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 commercialising of commercialising a football club. You know, there was huge. Uh, there was not a positive thing to be said about their takeover in the UK. They were prepared to to take that on, and if. And if Alex Ferguson would have said, "Oh, well, you know, we don't want this to happen," you know, I don't, it wouldn't have stopped it. They would have, they would have tried to have dealt with it, and maybe it would have been a disaster because of it, and we'd be talking about a very different story now. But I don't think he would have been able to stop it. I think he realised which way the wind was blowing, and he decided to work with it. And you've got to remember that, you know, the, what was happening in football in the two thousand, certainly kind of the, 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 from two thousand and three onwards is you have Roman Abramovich comes in and he changes the rules of the game. Before 2003, you could have, you know, match day income was so important. Big stadiums were important. You know, um, legacy was important. None of that mattered. If you had somebody who has billions of pounds and a bottomless pit and a willingness to spend it, regardless of whether there's profit or loss. And so what happens after, you know, is that you have everybody is out looking for a billionaire, for their billionaire who's willing to you know, make those kind of uh, same kind of sacrifices and sales. Now, the Glazers weren't that, but they certainly were somebody who could, they had a plan to massively increase what what the club was worth. And having that kind of acumen at the top of a club 
I think, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would, I would have thought that Ferguson, that would have been one of the reasons why he hitched his uh, wagon to the Glazer uh, horse. Is, is that a phrase? I don't know. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> to the Glazer horse. Do you, do you not think that uh, someone else, I mean, obviously, we mentioned as well that, that Rupert Murdoch uh, tried to make a bid uh, to buy the club as well. He was he was stopped by the uh, Monopolies and Mergers Commission uh, as it was you know would have deemed to be a conflict of interests. But do you not think? And I think this is you know this is the this is the thing that uh, irritates some fans about it that the club was all, was was naturally going to reach the place that it's in now. That that it was you know maybe maybe it wasn't clear cut that this is the direction that football in the Premier League and in Europe was going to lead to. But there are examples of other clubs like you know Bayern Munich, uh, Real Madrid uh, that have achieved exactly the same sort of commercial power without having to have uh, an owner come in and and perform a leverage buyout to take control. I mean, do you not think that would have happened anyway? No. No, never take anything for granted. Certainly not in the English game because, yeah, okay, you can look at Bayern Munich. They almost have a, a kind of safeguarded position because of the fifty plus one rule, which means that you know you can't have out, you cannot have uh, out and out ownership of a football club. Which means that's the reason why you don't have uh, Middle Eastern oligarchs or uh, Eastern European oligarchs going in and buying wholesale German football clubs. Also, because the socio system of ownership within uh, Spanish football, you don't, you cannot have the same kind of money coming into Spanish football that you have in English football. But because it's such a lax regulatory framework when it comes to ownership of clubs in English football, you can have it. So from nowhere, Chelsea, which of course before Brambridge uh, was enjoying probably one of the best periods in its career, but still very recently in the second division, you know. Um, you know, was not a major player, was not a top four club for the majority of its kind of uh, history in the 20th century, but suddenly could be elevated to the position of one of the biggest brands in world football because of one man's uh, deep pockets. Same with Manchester City. You know, so this is, you, we've got to think of the context of, of, of what would have happened. Manchester United, um, if it had bumped along, I mean, maybe a, a better owner would have come along, but from writing the Billionaires Club, you know, there aren't many better owners. You know, there there are there are very few benevolent owners. Well, pre- pre- no, but I'm not I'm not suggesting benevolent owners, but presumably any owner who was prepared to come and spend their own money to buy the club would be a better owner than the Glazers. Because the, as we look at, you know, the Manchester United as the as the commercial vehicle that they are now, incredibly strong position, and they're able to compete with clubs like Manchester City, who have obviously very very wealthy financial backers, without having the Glazers spend any money. They make all of their own money through the revenue of the club. So what difference, you know, the, the, the only difference if someone had actually spent their own money on the club rather than being a leveraged buyout would have been that they wouldn't have been a decade where they didn't have any money to spend. Well, who knows how it would have worked out. But certainly, I mean, yeah. if you had a, a middle, uh, middle Eastern royal family buying Manchester United, you know, OK, we wouldn't be talking about picks. We wouldn't be talking about leveraged buyouts, but we would be talking about human rights issues. We would be talking about there'd be protests <laughs> yeah. because of because of, of all sorts of other reasons. If if uh, if uh, if Alicia Usmanov, you know, wasn't an Arsenal fan and was a Manchester United fan, we'd be talking about the destruction of civil society and democracy in Russia and how this man was absolutely integral to the rise of Putin and also of turning Gazprom into a weapon of war against its neighbours. So we would be talking about different issues. So no doubt about it, in, in a way, it's almost kind of quaint talking about, again, you know, the Glazers, because as morally repugnant as some of their financial dealings are, I mean, at least they're, they're pretty legal, 
what what the other owners are doing okay i mean they they think nothing of dropping 100 million pounds to you know spending i think uh, last uh, transfer window manchester city spent the same on their defense that the state of bosnia and herzegovina spent on their defense budget you know of course you know they think nothing of dropping that but there are other issues to contend with and i think that it, it, whoever would have taken over manchester united you know i'm not sure um, whether it would have ended up any better. Um, I mean, it's a lot of money. There are a handful of people in the world who would have been able to buy and spend and keep Manchester United in the kind of finery it's accustomed to. Maybe, maybe 10, 15 people maximum who'd, who would have the kind of deep pockets to do that with Manchester United. And um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, you know, if they had bought it, there'd not be massive other issues to deal with. Well, that brings me to my final question then, because it, the situation is obviously very vague, and there are you know numerous ways to interpret it. Uh, you say at the end of the the video, you describe how Manchester United are in a, a strong position now, are worth an estimated three point six eight nine billion dollars more than Real Madrid. They have Jose Mourinho back at the helm, and the team is uh, you know in theory challenging, perhaps not for the title this season, but certainly next season, and also they're in the Champions League, but. You 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 ask what what the cost is, and I think uh, it's it's clear to see what what it what it has been over the last decade. If you're if you are a Manchester United fan, how do you evaluate the current situation? Has it been worth it? And what what do you think your thought process would be in determining whether or not that that is true? Well, if you know, we, we saw the kind of uh, green and gold protests around the time. Um, and there hasn't been much outward, uh, you know, at Old Trafford kind of discontent with the Glazers quite like that. I mean, there hasn't been that kind of uh, level of civil unrest. Um, but if the commercialisation of the club or what it represented when Glazer took over was was too much for you, wait to see what happens in the next 10, 15 years. Because that's what's, that, what's going to happen here with Manchester United is that it will cease to be an English football club and it will be... Uh, like the LA Lakers, it will be like uh, the Dallas Cowboys. It, it, it's going to be a behemoth that kind of transcends sport, transcends nationhood. And I think um, these are just these are going to be you know branded cash cows. And that's 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 where that's where this club is going. And you can say on the one hand, in the short term, okay, Manchester United is competing again after a blip, but competing again in the Champions League. I mean, who knows? Alexis Sanchez might be the might be the catalyst for to challenge Manchester City this season for the second half of the season. Uh, I think a lot of people would like to see much closer uh, championship title race, but this is going to this is going to get a lot worse in terms of the commercialisation of the football club, and uh, I think we're only really starting to see the beginning of it. James, thanks very much uh, for joining us, and we'll speak to you again soon. Cheers.